Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota, and here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 177 of the Foxy Podcast Show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. On this installment, we'll be digging into the work of the London-based experimental and avant-garde label Paradigm Discs, founded in 1995 by Clive Graham of the long-running improv group Morphogenesis. Paradigm Discs has since gone on to put out releases by the likes of Pauline Oliveros, Trevor Wishart, Daphne Oram, Adam Bowman, William Burroughs, amongst others. The label has remained active all of these years, but the last decade has seen Paradigm Discs operate on a steady one-release-per-year basis, the most recent being an extensive box set from the group Gentle Fire. This past week, I had a chance to speak with Clive through Skype about his time running Paradigm Discs and about some specific releases he's done in recent years. We also discussed his involvement in Morphogenesis and his old radio show called Sound Poets Exposed. Before we get into those interview segments, I'm going to play a few tracks from the Paradigm Discs back catalog, starting with a piece from Morphogenesis called Solarization Bridge.
starters, I was wondering if you could maybe talk about some of your formative musical experiences as someone who came of age in London at the end of the 70s and, and early 80s that, I guess, led you down this path into more fringe music, experimental music, whatever you want to call it. Because, I mean, that was certainly a pretty incredible period of time in London at the end of the 70s and early it, 80s. It really was. It was absolutely magical. And uh, I mean, because I was young at the time, I just thought uh, it would last. This was this is how music was. It was always going to be a, an amazing scene. Uh, so many people to meet and talk to and and just everything was peaking. I, I mean, uh, the, whether it's the free improvisation scene at the LMC, that was at its, you know, uh, at, a, at a peak, really, with, uh, you know, you could easily go and see Evan Parker or Derek Bailey, you know, almost once a week, uh, not to mention all the all the other guys were there as well, kind of, you know, having established themselves. I mean, Steve Beresford uh, had released his Bath of Surprise record in 81 or something on, on piano records, which was also responsible for this heat. I mean, just the list just went on. I mean, and all the sort of post-New Waves bands like Swell Maps, you know, just groups like that that were, that were li live. They were there all the time. It was just, uh, you, you didn't really realize that this was something ephemeral. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That would, well, you, eventually it, would, it wouldn't be there and you'd be regarded as a piece of history. I mean, the whole industrial music scene, whether you're uh, interested in taking in a White House gig or, uh, you know, the Nurse with Wound records that were coming out at that time, just everything, recommended records, uh, the whole new wave scene, I just amazing, really right. an am amazing time in London. Yeah, and, was there uh, was there like a a distinctive uh, artist or albums or things that stand out to you that really kind of the thing that gave you that that nudge to explore that further? When thinking back on that time, without any doubt, it was the the first sort of clutch of Nurse with Wound records, the first five. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they just they were just the soundscape of what was in my mind that i i couldn't put on paper and there it was they did it there it was, it was <laughs> yeah as, as sort of what was i um barely 20 right right and uh, i i just thought that 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 was that that was the epicenter not only that but the guy was so amenable and you know had this fantastic record collection and i hadn't heard ashra temple i hadn't heard i just hadn't heard them and right and, and he was just like, yeah, come around, have a listen, you know. And mm. so, so Nurse with Wind were really pivotal in, in development and rapid understanding of right. that whole scene, the avant-garde, the improvisation scene, everything. Right. I guess we can't underestimate the power of the Nurse with Wound list even as kind of a buyer's guide right out of the gates too. Well, well, it, it certainly was. I mean, you know, I mean, we all had our contacts at the time. Everything was kind of like you knew various people around the world that, and they, they mailed out lists of, of things that were for sale. And the nurse list was a, you know, is a really good template. I mean, for me, there were a few things on there. I thought, nah, that's not for me. But generally speaking, right. that, 
it, it, it was all you just had to find which titles by which bands that was the next thing really right. but uh yeah that was a a, ca- a very nerdish thing for them to have done as a group on those <laughs> early right. sitting right. around saying oh what are we what really inspires us you have to bear in mind 1979 writing that list you know and um and it was the three of them really it was, I, I mean they were all avid record collectors you know right kind of quite nerdish really exactly and, I mean, that, that was their main you know they were yeah buyers of vinyl and right. that's i think that i think even two of them met in a record shop if i remember rightly mm-hmm. fighting over a cover <laughs> and that was that's how they became friends right know? right i think even just the uh the persistence in tracking down and locating some of those records i mean we don't even think of that anymore because everything's so readily available but some of those were so limited and obscure just the fact that they were yeah. able to get into that world is pretty remarkable yeah well, uh, I mean, well, I think the skills at the time were, you know, you look, you look for very odd covers, mm-hmm. uh, anything that had a contact address on it. Uh, inevitably, these things were in the bargain basement because nobody wanted Futura records. Mm-hmm. If you saw a Futura record, it would be a pound. You know? right, right. It, would, it would never be, yeah. you know, it would just be something that snuck over from, uh, from France. It was all foreign. Nobody was interested. Bung it in the basement. Mm-hmm. And that's where we used to fish, you know, yeah, down right. in the basement. And, and uh, you just amazing Batiato's on blah blah, things like that. You, right. would, you, you wouldn't find them; they were cheap. Right, and to think of what they're valued at you now. To, <laughs> you had to be you had to be persistent, you know. But yeah. uh, I mean, obviously, London's a really big city, and stuff did come in. Right, and I, I, God knows from where, because uh, I remember finding a tarot box set. You know, the the Walter Wegmuller tarot box set that was down in a basement for ten pence. It was just like. <laughs> With a complete set of tarot cards, Sorry, yeah, yeah it's, those those things happened, you know. Right, it's such a rarity yeah. now because now you have to fork over, you know, half of your life <laughs> savings on like discogs <laughs> or something to get things like yeah, that. Yeah, right? I, I, I stupidly sold mine really cheaply to uh, to a friend who shall remain nameless. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if we if we fast forward a few years from that, that time period that we're talking about, how did you? eventually get involved in the group Morphogenesis. I mean, you joined the group, I think, a little bit later on. I mean, they had started, was it like mid-80s? Yeah. And I think you had kind of joined in, was it like the 90 or the early 90s or something like that? Yeah, it must have been something like that. I mean, uh, I, I know when it happened, and I know how the, the progress of how I first met them. To my shame, I never heard of this group. And <laughs> They'd been active for a few years. Now, why hadn't I heard of them? They'd been doing gigs. To be honest, I wasn't going to improv shows at that time. I was a little bit more oriented towards the industrial. So um, improv uh, kind of passed me by. And but the, and one of the most interesting things for me would have been Morphogenesis on that mm-hmm. on the improvisation scene at that time. But I, I met uh, Roger Sutherland at... Um, a concert that was local in Islington where we both lived. Uh, I still live here. Um, and it was a Lamont Young concert and quite a few people showed up for it. That, you know, you, you can imagine, you know, mm-hmm. it's like he, he was there with uh, Marion and I don't think they'd been in London for a very long time, if at all. Uh, so, um, and it was part of a, a nice concert series that used to happen. 
Uh, and there was Roger talking loudly about the Shandar record and the, the Shandar label, and he got some detail wrong. So I butted in and said, "No, no, not, that's not correct." So like, <laughs> and that was that was that was the moment I met somebody from Morphogenesis. So whenever that concert happened, would have been the start. And he was very enthusiastic and said, "Yeah, you must join in. You must, you you should do this. You should do that." And I was thinking. You know, I mean, there's just so much good music happening at the moment in London. How could I possibly contribute anything to this, you know, incredibly vibrant scene? And I was, you know, on the shy side anyway. And yeah. I, I, I just, I was reluctant. But I went to a few rehearsal sessions with them, uh, just sat in on, you know, just to listen to them play. Because by this point, they've all become, I'd met them all. Um, and uh, little by little, I thought, yeah, okay, let's... Uh, let's start doing some playing then. Okay. You know, cause one guy left the group at that time. Yeah. So well, had, was... had you been doing much like messing around with recording or even electronics Hardly. or things like that prior to that? Hardly at all, to be honest. Yeah. A little bit, I suppose just out of curiosity. Um, but I hadn't been in a studio and, um, I, I really wasn't I was much more a consumer of music mm -hmm. you know and uh, so I, I and there, there is that distinction I, I guess with some people where they're more kind of they're more listener more passive than active I still I still have doubts about doing things you know making that's, that's why I've done so little that's in a, in a solo capacity or you know I don't mind improvisation because that's it's a real-time thing. It's a. It's like a live meditation. You know, it's meditation, really. In many ways, it's like you know your sense of time and your engagement with what you're doing in real time is is spiritually satisfying. So I could I could get into that as a thing, but the idea of making records, you know, I, I, it's ne it's never really appealed to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, within that span of time of being involved in Morphogenesis, I guess what compelled you then to start? paradigm discs because if i if i have my facts correct you didn't start the label uh until you were like you were like working at recommended records the the shop is that correct and then was hey, I, kind of... I did a, yeah i did a stint there for a couple of years uh working as a bookkeeper which is something i'm not qualified to do at all but uh, it's a very <laughs> such a low-key enterprise that yeah uh, although it wasn't that low-key i mean it did distribution mail order it, you know and it had a label there was quite a lot going mm. on uh, we had this heat for starters, uh, so it was it was quite busy in some senses. Um, but I think the reason I started the label in around '95 was uh, by that stage I was dissatisfied with music. You know, I really thought, you know, it's really slipped. But I think I think it, it kind of was happened in tandem with the advent of CDs. Something about you know these very lengthy droney CDs that were coming out all the time, and uh, I, I I I really thought that uh, I could add something. At that point, I thought I could add something. Mm -hmm. And working at these, I, w I was introduced to a lot of people that came through the door that were, you know, I thought they I, I thought they had some great stuff, some great music they were making, and and were were not being heard. Right, right. That was the initial idea was to to release people that were unknown. Right, um, just from London, correct? Because the first one from, was the London oh, compilation, right? The London compilation, and really, I had no ambitions beyond that. Mm -hmm. It went, and I—it's the same today. I have no ambitions <laughs> beyond 
doing the next record. I right. really don't yeah, right. think in terms of the future. Well, so it was just the one record. It was just doing the one thing. And, it was, and there were various friends, John Wall. He's probably one of the only people on that compilation that actually went on to do more music. Most of them fell by the wayside. Mm -hmm. But um, well, I still stand by it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I guess, you know, after those that initial release, in some ways, the label started to shift and there was a focus more on archival releases, releases. Uh, reissue projects so I mean I guess what compelled yeah. you to move in that direction I mean certainly the landscape back then is much different than it is now where there's you know every, there's there's a glut yeah. of reissue labels so I suppose yeah. it seemed more appealing at that time than it does now yeah, exactly I mean I had an enormous list of things I wanted to reissue <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I you know I shortlisted quite a number of things um, many of which would have been on the nurse list I guess but um but other things too. I mean, it was really good to work away from the nurse because by then the nurse list was becoming a thing in itself. And mm. it was like, well, there must be loads of other things apart from what these guys were listening to. You know, there's a, there's a vast area. Um, so I did have a, a list of really, you know, records I'd love to have worked on. But at the same time, I was in the, the only people I was in contact with label wise that, that, uh, had any real strong connection with was, um, the cortical art foundation. Mm -hmm. I was in contact with them quite a bit, and and also with Alga Margan, who had also just started up around that time, and and they were the other kind of major um, competition towards this idea of you know getting these records that have not been mm -hmm. reissued done, you know you know like who's gonna who's gonna work on this or that you know right. <laughs> more, yeah more in this like avant garde or even sound poetry and, and yeah. things in that vein. Yeah, I, I don't know what, I mean, now I'm fed up with the idea of reissues because because it is such a, you know, I, you know I'm more into the archives than, than reissues. But I've done a fair few reissues. It has to be said about a third of the catalogue, I suppose, is reissues. Um, why did it happen? Um, it, I'm not quite sure now. I mean, <laughs> it's just... I always want. I, I never wanted to just do a straight reissue. With the CD idea, was to have lots of extra material. Like the, the first reissue is the the Trevor Wishart I did, and I thought, well, let's let's let put out all the, the missing bits that never made it to the album, because there are there are six parts that could make it to side one, but there are actually ten that were made. Well, let's have all. Let's have the lot. You know, let's do the the whole thing. So it was all about extra material, and and then after the Wishart was the Oliveros. And that includes a 33-minute piece that, at that point, had never come out. Big Mother is watching you. Mm -hmm. So it was it was really much more about um, adding things to the original, not right. just not just reissuing, really. Right, right. Well, first well, reissues. The, the first proper, just straight reissue is not till number seven, which is the Brass Burn. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even with the Dwight Frizzell, the um, the Anal Magic LP, uh, that came out with like 20 minutes of extra material, which mm -hmm. is from that period and feels like the album. It's got that, you know, kind of collage-y, slapdash kind of, what is this free jazz? Is right. it avant 
card? Is it electronic? I don't know where I am. I can't categorize <laughs> this stuff. Right, exactly. So yeah. I had that extra 20 minutes, which I thought was brilliant. You know, it was a lovely, you know, like how come this has just laid dormant since the mid 70s? Right, right. So it's um, so a gorgeous thing to add on and make it into like a, a 60, 60 minute plus CD. I mean, for me, that's what CDs were for, was for extra material exactly you know. yeah yeah well let's maybe discuss the latest project that you've worked on is the gentle fire box set. and we'll play something from it in just a moment but you know this is a group speaking of archives i mean there's been very little documentation of them at all um so i was just wondering if you could give yeah. us like the i know there's an extensive booklet so if people check it out there's a ton of information but maybe just for listeners if you could give us like the cliff notes version of this group well, I mean, um, I know I don't know much more about it than anybody else, but I knew Hugh Davis really well, and we worked together a lot. Um, he's on one of my compilations, and he lived super close to where I live, and I, I worked with his wife in a school. So I was a, like a friend of the household, and I, obviously I knew that there was this material. I knew that Gentle Fire existed. I had the album. Um and I knew that they'd done so much other stuff, but it, it was very hard to get my hands on the material until after Hugh died. And then and then it was all passed on to the British Library and they digitized it. And it was very easy to go down there and book a room and just put the headphones on and listen to 20 hours of gentle fire. <laughs> um, so and so there it all was. A lot of it's kind of uh, radio broadcasts. And so I, I then engaged with the members of the group who, I mean, obviously they're London based, so I have a bit of an advantage, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're known, they're local, localish. Um, so we, we met down there and we got, you know, we chatted and met and, you know, I, I started working on it actually, believe it or not, the first time I played their files was in, uh, in, in 2012. Oh really? And I, it just, I just suddenly mm -hmm. it dawned that there was going to it was just looked so complicated and expensive to get these things a out of the british library b the permissions from all the radio stations particularly the bbc which i thought i'd have to go to for some of the material and the quality of the material was also a lot of it was off air not good enough really you know i mean i would have had to have spent a lot of time mastering it the whole project just seemed to be a lot of work it was a, it was a lot of work yeah. but it seemed it's going to be insurmountable and expensive and i just at some at a certain point i just said i can't do it and then i came back to it years later and thought um i can do an lp I, let's you know let's at least do um group composition six which is the uh the spoken word one which i love mm -hmm. that's been a side of an album and the other side can be bits and bobs that we can find that are, there's no heavy duty copyright on it um but then suddenly bits started falling together and Radio Brain found the master tapes for their session and it wasn't expensive for me to get hold of that. And the ISIS session came through, thanks thanks entirely to Eric Lanzalotta in uh, yeah, in, in America. America, right, yeah. And, and, and he was going to work on that piece but hadn't done so for, well, it must have been 10 years. So I thought, well, okay, you know, I mean, uh, let's put it on the box set and we'll work together on this. Yeah, yeah. So that happened, and and so that's like two CDs already were were filled without too much trouble, and the the third one was was also you know little miracles occurred, 
to get hold of the early recordings. So there was there's no BBC involvement and only one radio station in the end. So um, I just, you know I just I, once I started absorbing myself in that material, I just thought this you know this is how come this never got dealt with at the time? You know I mean right. fifty years, right. fifty years right. in a couple. Oh, what's happening? You know, what, <laughs> and how much longer would it have been there if I hadn't done it? Again, cortical art were very interested at the time. Then, then uh, Gary had his accident. Mm-hmm. You, you know, Gary Todd, who ran cortical art. I don't. Uh, uh, uh. I know oh, that right. I'm familiar with the label, though. Yeah. He had, he had this dreadful accident uh, where he, he he fell off a, a balcony. Mm. Uh, how long ago that was? I can't remember now. Must have been twenty years ago. Mm. Anyway, it left him permanently um, incapacitated, let's Ooh. say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was a terrible incident. And, he, of course, he had this amazing catalogue doing all the Terry Rileys, and he was working on so many big projects, right. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, then, and then the other person who was interested was Andrea Cianotta in, uh, in, in Milan. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he'd been working on it on and off. He had little ideas. But, again, the correspondence between Hugh... And Andrea, Andrea runs um, uh, the labels called um, Elica. Okay. You know, okay. Elica Records. It doesn't ring a bell, actually, huh? Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's called Elica. Yeah. Okay. Well, they, they, he's released things like Luke Ferrari. He was friends with Ferrari and his wife. And okay. Okay. A, a bunch of Italian stuff, and he's done Vitamin B12. Very selective kind of label. Mm-hmm. Um, some Henri Chopin, that kind of thing. Okay, okay. Um, um, and uh, he was going to do something. But, and, you know, I mean, when you're that remote from Hugh Davis, Hugh Davis is always very busy with his academic stuff, his musical stuff. The gaps were huge between their correspondence. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, it never quite happened. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 in some ways, it's very much easier to deal with things after someone has died because... You just get access to that, you know. Just it just becomes you and the archive, rather than having to mediate between mm-hmm. someone who may be slow or otherwise occupied or maybe not that interested, you know. Uh, yeah. So, so it became a lot easier after Hugh died, and it really was all down to uh, Hugh's archive. Sure. But the rest of the group have bits and pieces uh, of stuff and the odd photograph and. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, no real kind of um, grip on the whole archive that was Gentle Fire. Right. So, I mean, it's it, it's all down to Hugh's uh, diligence, really, yeah. that I even know what, what, what they recorded. Right. Well, let's, let's yeah. play some tracks here, and we'll start off again with the Gentle Fire uh, taking on the Earl Brown composition for Systems, and then we'll come back and chat a little more.
disturb the Sabbath, something I forgot to tell you. Some weeks ago, whilst driving bath chair number two, not more than a hundred metres from this house, I was assaulted physically by hooligans. Right. For this reason, I carry on bath chair number two a life-preserving truncheon, which I completely forgot to take off and transfer back to number one. And that should be hanging in inner tube rubber bands just below the front of the chair. Perhaps you'd be kind enough to check if it's there. Shall I hold on and just keep it and look after it carefully and make sure I get it back in due course? In the meantime, I shall have to cut myself a wooden stick or something and carry that. It's, it should be hanging where? It should be hanging across the chair, directly behind one's knees, oh, right. on the front of the chair. Yeah. Wrapped in a plastic bag? Yes, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Is, is there something there? Yes. That's it, yes. Good. Just look after it and make sure I get it back in due course. In the meantime, I'll have to cut myself a piece of wood or something. Yes. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye.
So we, we finished up that block of music with a track from that Amnav Raviv's uh, Mirror album, hope I'm saying that correctly, which originally was released in an edition of 50 copies back in 1983, and then you, you reissued it back in 2019. I was just curious about how that project came together for you, and, and I guess since you had a chance to work with him on it, do you have a better sense of, like, what went into the making of that? I mean, or what, what What was his sort of headspace or musical background that led to that record? Because it's such a singular record. It is, isn't it? It's incredible. I mean, I, I was given a copy of it by an Israeli fanatical record collector who uh, came to London a couple of times and uh, he gave me a copy of it when it was, you know, kind of still fresh, really. And... Um, I always really liked it. I like, yes, you know, there's two or three tracks on it. I always really liked. I wasn't so sure about the the musically virtuosic stuff, but mm-hmm. to be honest with you, that's all grown on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it. I think as a the whole album's wonderful, um, and I only met Amnon once in a Starbucks, and uh, I was with him and his son, and we sat there for a few hours talking. But to be honest with you, I didn't. I didn't ask him any. I mean, at that time, I was just working on the record. I wanted to, you know, release it. I wasn't. When you first, when I first meet someone, I don't really want to know the ins and outs of how they made their records or, you know, I, I, you know, what inspired them. I was all I was interested in really was seeing whether I liked the guy or not, or whether you know, how we got on as people. I, I, that was really for me is more important than the record. We know the rep. Both we both know the record, but so I didn't want to dig too deep on it. Mm. Um, so I, I, I have to say, I don't, I, I don't know too much about the ins and outs of, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I said to him, you must write some sleeve notes for this because the record came out originally with no information, no track titles, nothing. Um, I do know that uh, around that time he became a, a performance artist, a traveling performance artist. Right, right. The photo on there. Around- the photo on yeah, it is of him there's, performing. There's, there's, there's some photos of him doing a performance in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So he'd moved out of Israel, uh, got out. I don't know, again, what circumstances that was under. I mean, Israel can be a very heavy country to be living in uh, in throughout the latter half of the mm-hmm. last century right, right. in terms of having to do military duties, and it, it's pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know whether he got out for that reason or what, but he was a young man and uh, hit the road and started doing these street performances right across Europe mm-hmm. with uh, his his then partner. And uh, uh, he's very much into that street theatre. And like all performance artists, it's about the body and, you know, 
and your and body in space. It's, it's that whole You're dynamic. Right. And so, and a lot of the record is to do with emotional thoughts and feelings and corporeal realities. You yeah. know, I mean, that, that's the only way. It's 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 very conceptual. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the sleeve notes uh, uh, is really as much as I know about the whole record. I don't know more than that. Sure, sure. They're just they're just expressions of his states of mind at that time. Right, right, right. Uh, and mirror presumably is the mirror held against the self. Yep. Uh, I, you know more. I, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I prefer it. In some way, I quite like it to just remain sort of. Yeah. It's like so much music. I I like it to have a a, a mysterious. Right. Unexplained. You don't want to know. Of, you don't want to know all the details of it. The making. Oh, the... I mean. I, in, in some ways I do, but and if I if I'd met him over countless occasions, uh, then perhaps I would know more. But one meeting, right, right, yeah, yeah, yep. one, and, and uh, the, all the emails have been more about you know the deal, you know what's right. happening, who's doing what, how's it going to be done, and the contract and blah blah blah. He works, you know, I mean, you know that he works now as a a, a doctor in yeah. uh, on cancer wards, right, and. Um, I, you know, I, I follow him on Facebook and, uh, you know, he recently got COVID and overcame it. It's back mm. on, back on the hospital wards mm. again, you know, and, uh, he's just a wonderful guy. I mean, right. I, I don't, I don't know if I need to know much more really. Right. He, I'd love to see him again. Right. You know, really yeah. like to say if he, I mean, I'd like to get him a gig in London because at the time his son was a, a student in London and, um, also was musically involved. They work as a duo. They have their mm. own band camp thing, doing a, a more song-structured Middle Eastern style, but quite skillful playing. And, um, I, I, you know, I would like to have gotten them a gig, right. which I possibly could have done, you know. Mm. I mean, I at, at Cafe Otto, I think, because I know that the people at Cafe Otto, you know, there's a venue in London yep, yep. where everybody plays. Right. Uh, it's, the, it's the only place really where everybody comes to i mean well not since last march of course but uh you know i mean the last concert i went to was there and it was uh, i saw a group called alterations mm-hmm. you know you know them they're, they're an improvisation Three, group with yeah toop and eastley not eastley um uh peter cusack's yeah uh, group and steve beresford amongst others mm-hmm. terry day and so that so you know that's really where everything happens in london as a cafe auto and uh I, could, I think I could have got them a gig there because they they really like the record and right. yeah, it might have been nice to have done a sort of international gig at that venue. Right. Well, I also played something from the the Sedan tapes, the volume one that you put out a couple yeah. years ago from Captain Maurice Sedan, who you know was undeniably quite an eccentric figure. But you know, <laughs> there's also something that I found to be really quite endearing about him <laughs> in his in his. <laughs> Just his personality and his precision with language. But I was surprised, actually, as I was kind of doing research, that he actually was on the David Letterman show here in the U.S. in, like, 1990, which was a little bit, like, you could tell he was sort of a sort... He was being mocked to a certain extent, which I found a little bit frustrating. But anyway, what I wanted to ask you is, like, some of these these recordings go back to... Like they've been played for quite a while on Resonance FM for I guess a, a, for a while. So was that where you had discovered that stuff? Uh, like hearing these different tapes, and I guess yeah. Uh, what what 
led you to put this out? I mean, that's that's a bold step of taking phone recordings and putting that out on an LP. Uh, yeah, but I'd done, I'd done something similar with Adam Bowman, just releasing a lot of his cassette record, you know, mm-hmm. diaries, his recordings right. into to a, a diary. I quite like this idea of um, why do records have to just be musical or, you know, I mean, I you know, it's, it's you know, it's not particularly avant-garde to just <laughs> do music. Why not right. speech? Right. Why not theater? Um, and the phone calls, the phone calls are just so bizarre. I mean, why, why did he record them? Right, and it I mean, sounds like the... he had done that for years too, for a long period yeah. of time. Yeah, there's there's so much to say about Seddon. I don't know where to begin, but um, yeah, it was because I, a I knew William English, who who was a friend of Seddon's. I never met Seddon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he knew Seddon, and he appeared on his resonance show. That he does a show for resonance called Wavelength. Mm-hmm which I've, I've been on numerous times. I tend to do promotional sh- shows for CDs I've put out, and you know, William's an old friend. And we, we do good shows together. It always works out pretty well. Um, so I, I knew the stuff from there, and I just thought, well, maybe we can compile some of this stuff and put it together as a, as a record. Maybe it would have been better as a CD, but because um, you could get so much more on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, really, no one was... Buying, I thought I can't sell. I won't be able to sell any on CD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I do some kind of sexy record, maybe with lots of photographs, then maybe I can sell some. <laughs> I sold a hundred, you know. <laughs> which, uh, is, which is in I, this day and age, isn't such a bad thing. But I know what you're saying. It's it's dreadful if you want to <laughs> break know. even with a, uh, a you know an LP with a sort of I don't know what it, what it was an eight page booklet or twelve full size. <laughs> You know, I mean, it, it, it's nowhere near broken even, right. which means I haven't done volume two. Yeah. And I have at least two more volumes right. that are right. ready to go of equal quality material. I have the covers, the material, everything's ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I have no space <laughs> to unreleased, you know, un- unsaleable uh, records. Uh, you know, there's just no space. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but it, I, I was so enamored, like, like you know, I mean, to be honest with you, it did particularly badly in America. I don't think America really generally got it mm-hmm. at all. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, perhaps he is a, a figure of ridicule more, whereas perhaps there's a slightly different take for British people who are a little bit more accustomed to eccentric aristocracy. He's mm-hmm. not an aristocrat, but he's... He certainly had the education. He had the education of um, an aristocrat. Right. But he right. was—he was—he had no money, mm-hmm. he, and he lived in complete squalor, you know. But he had this standing, this kind of—you—you <laughs> you can tell there's a sort of military, very sort of obvious kind of British military, uh, authoritarian, always gets what he wants, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, but he, but also there's that sort of crabby kind of uh <laughs> not happy with the modern world right right vibe about him which and the, the but he's but he's always in good spirits he's never negative he's always gives the benefit of the doubt but he won't stand for any nonsense and it's just those all those combinations are just they're very playful and right i would love i would love to have met him right i love the the one the call where he's not agreeing to change uh, to the new dentist practice without me- <laughs> without meeting them first. That's just not good practice that he would be charged 
to go there to meet yes. them. That was that is so yeah. fantastic. Oh, yeah, that's but but he go but he goes into a, a story as to what it's always kind of like an explanation, a really full explanation as to why you know back in my days it was done differently, you know, and, yeah, and yeah. it's all expounded in this very verbose and precise manner right you right know, that you think my god what a turn of phrase you know to come out with it just on the phone <laughs> exactly yeah you know? well is it, is, is it fair to say i mean it seems that paradigm discs that you do have with the label you're kind of drawn to certain eccentricity or outsiders <laughs> like there's a home there on paradigm discs for a fair amount yeah. of people of a particular british sort i would say you're right <laughs> Well, well, I mean, Dwight Frizzell's quite eccentric. That's true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, pretty outsider, yep. and they don't get more American than a, a man from Kansas. Yep, that's true. A real Missouri man. <laughs> um, in, indeed, I thought that you know you might have a point. I, I have thought this myself. Like you know, um, I do like uh, the outsider element to things. You know, it's it's very appealing. Mm-hmm. It's. It, but it isn't because they're outsiders so much. It's more because they're doing their own thing, and they're not they're not bothered about you know getting things recognised or any sense of, of being successful or you know. So and that appeals to me as well. The idea that they you know no one's no one's exposed this. You know, Adam Bowman being the obvious example for me, and I've released so much of his stuff. There's three uh, titles. Right. Plus, he's a member of Morphogenesis, mm-hmm. and he's on a compilation. So he's he's pretty he's the most predominant artist on the catalog. Right. Uh, he's a good friend, of course, and um, I love his art and I love everything he does. And but he's completely he's just not bothered about you know making records particularly. Other people pick up on it and release his stuff and publish it all the time. Especially in in more recent years, but he's I'm particularly drawn to the stuff that happened long before anybody paid him any attention and before right. he did any concerts and before he became this. I mean, because when I knew Adam, when I when I was in Morphogenesis with him, and, you know, we still do occasional Morphogenesis things, but you know, there's no flamboyance or you know, he's not sort of like this front of stage guy. But since he started doing uh, the Bowman Brothers stuff and also the the secluded Bronte, which is a trio mm-hmm. with the two Bowman brothers and and Richard Thomas, it's very much is completely out of his shell. He's completely the front man. Like, mm-hmm. oh my god! <laughs> and I've seen I've seen him do incredible solos, which have just been him talking. And uh, and as I speak to him before the gig, and he's like, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm really nervous. I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got no idea what I'm going to do. Not a clue. He brought no instruments, nothing. <laughs> and he did, genuinely didn't know what he was going to do. And he stood up and told this joke for 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, the sheer kind of ability to do that. And the, the audience was howling because right. it was a long, it was a long right. theatrical joke with lots of, you know, it was, it was superb, right. absolutely superb. And you'd have to be, uh, you'd have to, I don't know what, what the word, I couldn't, I could never, ever right. do anything remotely like that. Right. You know, but, I would just seize up immediately. Oh, right. The thought of just standing in front of a group of per, per, uh, people and saying, okay, perform. <laughs> yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't do that. Well, especially if it's just speech. Right, you know? right, right. Yeah. Uh, you've, got, you've got nothing else but a microphone. I don't even know if you had a microphone. Um, 
it was a, obviously it wasn't a massive gig it wasn't a sort of stadium gig it was 20 people or so but it was it was it was genuinely very funny very good very well t- the timing in it was good right uh, i mean just innate theatrical skills uh, right. which you know he doesn't make any show of and most of his stuff is is bedroom working in the bedroom solo not not doing it for anybody mm-hmm. just i did i did one copy for me you know it's like completely un the opposite of showy right the, uh, total opposite right uh but yeah, he has those he has the skills to do you know to go on stage and 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 act and and, and you know he's a he's a, a complete artist right and it's right. a honor to know the man yeah well you've done as you mentioned a a few different things you have two collections of the music and words are there i I would imagine there's loads of other material that could continue that series is that something that you've considered oh oh, no i have volumes three and four ready to go but again he's an artist who sells a hundred copies yeah yeah uh uh, and again almost zero in america Mm -hmm. um it doesn't. It just doesn't reach. It, you know, it doesn't come through uh, in quite the same way as if I uh, do more. I don't. I don't know what the difference is for me. I can't tell the difference between Seddon and Bowman's work and and say Amnon Ravive. Or oh, well, okay. There's obviously a lot of it. The Bowman and Seddon is text, spoken word. There's a lot of spoken word. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I, but for me, the, the the quality of the art, the aesthetic, the interestingness of it is the same i can't tell i i can't tell why one thing sells more than another right right i, I just can't you know i mean uh, uh, even with daphne oram it took me totally by surprise that uh, that this thing was you know that this thing had saleability mm-hmm. yeah and, and since in- that release i mean there's been such a revival and in interest upon like the bbc radiophonic workshop I, you know yeah Exactly. I, I'm I'm continually astonished by uh, the the amount that I see her name being mentioned because I, obviously I you know I, I, I get feedback when she, when when her stuff gets used or whatever I I tend to find out but yeah, she was a total footnote mm-hmm. right yeah <laughs> really I mm-hmm. mean you know, with one not very interesting seven inch single uh, uh, available um, in the fifties in the early sixties but. I thought when I got when I again and that was through Hugh Davis getting the archive and, I, and uh, yeah it was I just felt like no one else is going to do this I might as well do this and then it just I was astonished at the uh, the reaction right right but um so it's it's very very hard for me to gauge I, I for me something like when I do the set and I think this this should because it's not music but because it isn't avant garde it's kind of anyone can understand right. what it's about. right. This this is gonna really people are gonna get this, but no, the exact the total opposite, absolute yeah. flop. Yeah. Well, if you figure out how to sell things in, in this area of music, please let me know because I haven't figured it out either. <laughs> yeah. So. No, it's all it's all a big mystery, isn't it? Really, yeah. what 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 sells and what doesn't. Right. Well, let's let's play some Adam Bowman. I'm glad you 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 basically took on my next question by addressing his work, which was fantastic because he's certainly a standout artist in your catalog. I'm going to play something from the first volume of Words and Music, uh, a piece called Metal Mushroom, and I think we're going to just spill into the following track where you get a little bit of the music and a little bit of the words. So At Home, Sunbury, right after that. So here's Adam Bowman.
Just after 10.20pm and I'm sitting in the kitchen of my parents' house in Sunbury-on-Thames. I've returned home for the Christmas holiday period. After leaving work at around 4pm, I took a bus to Waterloo Station and then got the 432 Shepparton service that calls at Sunbury-on-Thames. Earlier on we had liver, bacon, 
mashed potatoes and Brussels sprouts, followed by mince pies and custard for the evening meal. The bags I was carrying containing all the Christmas presents, as well as records, cassettes, art material, and numerous other things were extremely heavy. Jonathan, my brother, should be showing up tomorrow. For the duration of my visit, I will be occupying the front bedroom. I don't like autumn and winter. The days are short and the nights are long. The sun rises late and sets early. Our climate is not very good, but it's certainly interesting. It's our favorite subject of conversation.
wanted to discuss your Sound Poets Exposed uh, radio program that aired on Resonance FM. And you had mentioned previously that, you know, you've been 
on that station and appeared on various shows over the years. But you had a good run with that show. Was it from like 2002 to maybe 2006 or seven? And I wanted to just get a little background about that show. And are those archived anywhere? Because I've been, tr- I always look on your website uh, and I'm like, oh, there's not a link. I'd love to hear that particular episode. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think they've ever been replayed. Uh, I'm not quite sure why, because, um, I think the guy who runs the station quite enjoyed them. I mean, they were, some of them were quite messy and uh, quite alcoholic, uh, (laughs) because I I did it with various friends live. They were always live shows. Yeah. Uh, so, and it was a Sunday evening and, you know, the station was empty and they, they really, it was just you and the microphone and. There was nobody else around, so we, you know we we used to kind of uh, enjoy it. Let's say, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I I didn't record many of them. I think everything that Resonance does does get archived at a super low bit rate, and it's all stored somewhere. But it's never those shows never got replayed, and they haven't been archived. But it's a good it's a good playlist. I mean, if right. I <laughs> right. If I say so myself, I mean, there's a quite a lot of, and it just grew every, every, every week I seem to, I mean, I had a real run of finding sound poetry anyway. And uh, it's, it's an area of music I'm, I'm quite keen on. And there were, there were so many things constantly coming out on Alga Margan and other mm-hmm. labels. And I, and I just made a point of acquiring those things. So there was always new material to keep playing. The show just rolled and rolled. I thought maybe it last maybe half a year based on my, current supply of sound poetry and so it was a it was a two-hour radio show i do one hour I'd, i would do one i would play one album of sound poetry and interlace it with other bits and bobs that you know i just wanted to play right, for fun right. um so there'd always be a whole album which i quite like the idea of just doing you know playing a whole thing yeah um and yeah, the, the reason that uh, I chose sound poetry, I just uh, when I pitched it, because when Resonance first started, people, all kinds of people were asked, you know, what kind of radio art you want to do, you know, and I just thought, well, what's the most extreme I can think of? <laughs> and I'd still think that sound poetry, because it's verbal, and because most of it's acoustic, it, it has a real extremity to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, the, the sounds that Henri Chopin comes out with just through very basic tech the most basic tape techniques slowing down speeding up reversing just really extreme and i thought this is this is what i want to play i want to play some sound poetry right and, and they 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 gave me the go-ahead to do it and um and it, it just ran and ran in fact the playlists that are online are actually only the ones that i documented the, the show actually probably ran for about six months prior to that as well okay. it ran for very very beginning of resonance right the first weekend uh you know i was there doing the show it is remarkable Uh, to me that there were that many that you could uncover that many sound poetry records at that time you know yeah i did i did uh give it a bit more um i drifted a bit into theater occasionally if the theater was uh, extreme like whether it be japanese or renditions of uh, james joyce finnegan's wake i I did i did kind of you know uh, take it a little bit further, but generally, yeah, it's all sound poetry. Right. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, you had mentioned that Morphogenesis is occasionally regroups. I mean, what is what's the status of, of that group? 
<laughs> don't know. Yeah, I suppose right now it's almost impossible with, you know, COVID lockdowns and all that to even be in a band like that. But it's still kind of an ongoing concern at the very least, correct? Uh, I'd like to think so. And we always thought that uh, quite pretentiously that the music continues even when we're not playing. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> it's probably a very John Cage idea. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, uh, we don't have to be, you know, it's like, you know, it's all around you all the time anyway. And it's all about these morphogenetic fields. Mm-hmm. And uh, But in terms of actually physically getting together and doing a gig, what, for one thing, we've never really actively looked for concerts ever which is why they're quite few and far between anyway. Uh, it's also quite a big group, so the group never traveled very much for logistical reasons. Right, to, to right. People, you know, throughout the 90s, I mean, to get gigs, and it was really the group was most active and known during the 90s. To, to, to get gigs, it was mostly, mostly individuals uh, doing ad hoc, you know, kind of gatherings with other individuals that would be, jetted in from different countries to a venue in say cologne or whatever but to get five people over or possibly six and give them hotels was just it just became an impossibility it right. so it we never really got many gigs overseas i mean a few notable exceptions but um nowhere near enough live work because I, I always thought our stuff sounded better if we if we get out of our home studios and actually uh, performed in a live environment where things are different. Right, you know, right. setup becomes automatically different, and you're, you know, the, the chances of getting a more distinctive recording were there. Uh, so it was always great to play uh, uh, venues. So we played quite a few in London, but London is a super low budget, no grant city. Mm-hmm. So and we need, a, we always needed a PA, and uh, so we'd have to bring our own. PA, which would never be quite satisfactory. Venues were tiny, you know. I mean, really, it's not ideal. I mean, you know, the, the ideal situation for us would have been something like, I don't know, Filkingham, playing at Filkingham in, in Stockholm, which we never did. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I think I tried once or twice, but, uh, you know, unless you're on that treadmill to begin with, you don't just jump on it. You, you need, you know, there was. You look at the lists of people who were doing the circuit back in the nineties. It was the same names looping round and round right. Europe. Right. The the art the, like the arts council type crews or the art grants well, you know, funded. Well, you know, you t- I'm convinced that to get anything even responded to on the arts council, you you, you have to be already known to the yeah. arts council. Right. It's one of those things. And if you apply as this a completely out of the blue, uh, well, who are you? So mm. like. You've got no track record, you know. You, so you 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 get you don't get any traction, mm-hmm. and and we we absolutely had no traction whatsoever. Yeah. As 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 an international outfit, mm-hmm. it just it, it never happened. None of us was particularly interested in developing it. Uh, you know, uh, none of us are particularly commercially minded. Possibly, I'm the most commercially minded of the whole band. <laughs> And I'm not particularly. <laughs> and my skills were it's like every every form was an F major effort to even look at it. I just it just became this soulless exercise. So we we didn't do it. We didn't. We just didn't bother. You know, if people didn't if people didn't latch onto it, then so be it. That's fair enough. Right. And so so we didn't do many gigs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, are, you know, and that's the case now. We still don't actively look. I mean, I I think we do a concert if somebody said, "Oh, do you want to?" Do you want to come over and play? We'd 
we'd do it at least at, at least I think most of us would um, yeah 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 Adam, Adam certainly would Adam and me and Adam and I have done duo we came to the States we actually did a little mini tour just the two of us yeah yeah you put yeah you uh, played in New York it was it that's right right yeah yeah and we played in Silver Springs uh, at that the festival that happens there mm-hmm and uh, and we played in Philadelphia. We did two gigs in New York. Okay. One on turn. So it was, you know, I mean, that was a little. I mean, actually, I mean, I absolutely love doing stuff like that. Yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd love to do more of it. Right. But um, yeah. My, well, Doesn't my, happen often. Yeah. My la- my last question for you to wrap things up here is, you know, yeah. Uh, you just put out uh, the Gentle Firebox. It. Any things that you have planned for your one release per year schedule <laughs> moving forward that you can mention? I mean, are, what, are things that you'd yeah. like to do? Uh, well, I've just, I've just put into production another William Burroughs record, oh, okay. um, which uh, it's a bit too soon to talk about. I never talk about things, really, because yeah, yeah. it takes at least another four or five months for it to come out. But mm-hmm. I have, I'm really, really happy with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'd be the second Burroughs. I mean... Can you think of a record label that's done two William Burroughs records? Uh, not off the cuff, no. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. This is the thing. I mean, I feel completely honored. Right. It's like, wow. I mean, the Giorno Poetry Systems released lots of compilation tracks. Uh, but, of course, he was a mate of right. uh, William's. So it's like, yeah, sure, you can imagine that there'd be quite a few tracks. But in terms of a record label that did two, there isn't one. There right. isn't one. That, so, could, that could be your big seller right there, I'd imagine, William Burroughs. It, it it's yeah sure I mean I, I I know straight away I can do you know I mean I can do a little I can sell mm-hmm. some records for sure I mean that's right. without a doubt so perhaps I can on the back of that we can you can get to hear Maurice Seddon Volume Two there we go that would be fantastic <laughs> and I maybe spend all the money yeah and maybe more Adam Bowman that one can only help well again I would yes there's a Music and Words Three ready to go and it would be a It'd be great to work on that. I, I love compiling Adam's stuff because it's mm-hmm. there's so many things, there's so many songs, so many strange tapes, and I know what I want to do. I just haven't stitched it together and heard it. Right. And I'm sure it'd be quite interesting if I do get around to doing that. It'll be a 70 minute CD. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a full length CD. Right. Well, yeah. we, we have something to look forward to then. That would be fantastic. So. Yeah. Well, Clive, I'm going to jump into this last block here. We'll start off with a solo piece of yours. We haven't really talked a great deal about your solo work, but this is from uh, Variations 3, one of the compilations, the London compilations. You put out a piece yeah. called Time Spool. Um, quick, maybe just a very quick setup. Do you re- do you recall kind of the, the is, arrangement stuff? Yeah. This is ancient. This was, this was composed on a half-inch um, eight-track machine that I had here at the time. So very old school. Uh, God knows how I did it. I have no idea. I mean, it, it, like a lot of things, I have things on the boil all the time. That that uh, so I can't remember how the little bits come together. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the same with this piece. I have no idea what it what it was made of originally. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll play this here again. This is called Time Spool. And Clive, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, David.
Number five. Thank you. 
themselves to a new situation. is a noble one. It is realistic and feasible. Human powers of intuition, spatial imagery, originality, etc. are far superior to those of present or immediately foreseeable machines. Discontented functioning as a cog in the production machine represents time of full mechanization is identical with the time of the tin can.
automation is not... And that's going to bring things to an end for this installment of the show. I want to thank Clive once again for taking the time to speak with me this week. If you'd like to check out the complete playlist for this show, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that will bring you to each of the releases played and where you can purchase a copy directly through the Paradigm Discs website if you'd like. You can also purchase digital versions of many of their releases at paradigm discs.bandcamp.com If you have any questions or comments you can always get in touch with me at ffreakout.hotmail.com Be back again in a couple of weeks with another new episode. Until then thanks so much for listening.